Welcome to another segment of Let's Talk UNLV on KUNV. You with your co-host Keith and Renee. Renee, how was your weekend? It was good. Pretty relaxing. Uh, did some travel uh, to uh, the D.C. area, and uh, I'm back now, safe and sound. What about you? Uh, just at home working on some DIY projects. Ended up disassembling all my office, took all the furniture out, put new desk in, new shelves, went through all the drawers, just just little busy stuff. And then my sister, who we've been sort of co-quarantining, she came over and we started binge watching a new show called Snowfall. So it's been oh, very yeah. interesting. I've been staying up a little too late watching that show. It's hard to turn it off once you get once you get into it. So that's been a very entertaining show. <laughs> yeah, I know about Snowfall. Well, I know this segment is something that I've been very interested in. You know, we we this is a a continuation series from a previous segment where we've been talking about hate. And one of the things we have another set of guests who's going to be in talking about that, about this series to cover, you know, a range of topics, including, you know, the effects of racism on public health, indigenous and land injustice, the First Amendment and policing. So. This segment, we're going to be talking exclusively about with a couple guests. We have Dr. Roberta Sabbath, who's the Religious Studies Coordinator for Campus and Community Partnerships and also visiting professor in the English department. We also have Sebastian Ross, who's a law student in the William Boyd School of Law. And we also have Dr. William Sousa, who's the director of Center of Crime and Justice Policy and professor in the Department of Criminal Justice. Guests, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to Thank be you here. for having us. And what we would like to do is maybe do a brief introduction of each of the guests. You could just maybe share a little bit about yourself. And we'll start with uh, Dr. Sabbath, then followed by Sebastian, then Dr. Sousa. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Renee and, and Keith, for having us. The concept of hate uncycled uh, developed from the Anti-Defamation League that has always, for about a century, done studies, tracked hate episodes, around the country and actually around the world, and began to see how important it was to begin to educate, offer education, offer ally building with college campuses. As a result, when we had that, I think it was October 16th of 2019 episode, when we had a hate episode, it just about closed the campus. And it was time that we began a conversation in an organized fashion. So we had a very small, I think it was in the student union with 22 students, and now we have this conversation going campus, community-wide, uh, all virtual, and we'll be dealing with uh, topics all the way from public health, which is February 3rd, uh, to our own campus, what, that, what our campus is doing with student diversity, social justice, how various constituencies are affected by hate whether it's women from our care center, Asian Americans, uh, with Mark Padoonpot, we have our student body president, and we have the president of our university, who you may not know this, but does has done well over two decades of research on African American men and what they sustain in our in our country. And then our third ep- our third episode is March the third with Indigenous and Land Rights, and our fourth law enforcement, public voice, and security. And it's to these last two conversations that our wonderful guests are here today, Sebastian and Bill. Yeah, just uh, just in uh, just a segue, you know, first I want to, uh, I want to thank you, Renee and Keith, for having us on to talk about our work today. And I also want to thank 
Dr. Sabis for, you know, giving us the platform to, uh, to speak about these issues that are important in our community. So I'm a law student. I'm a second-year law student at the uh, William S. Boyd School of Law. I'm the president of the Black Law Students Association at the school and also sit as a junior staffer for the UNLV Gaming Law Journal. And uh, for this legislative session, I'm also going to be externing for Senator Dallas Terrace. And um, one thing that I'm really passionate about is my research project um, for Professor Fritz and Professor uh, Nagai Pindell, where we talk about the historically African-American neighborhood of Windsor Park. Could you tell us a little bit more, Sebastian, about what that means? That's a compelling oh, absolutely. topic. Absolutely. And um, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, to going a little bit further in depth and, and to give you a little more context. But just a quick synopsis, um, Windsor Park, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, it is an historically African-American neighborhood in the city of North Las Vegas. And the ground was broken in the mid-1960s. And this was during a time when de facto segregation practices were uh, were being exercised in, uh, in Las Vegas, in the Las Vegas Valley in the surrounding areas as well. And because of that de facto segregation, um, certain communities such as our black community here um, had to deal with adverse effects that, that's lasted for generations, quite frankly. Uh, thank you for that, Sebastian. We certainly will get back to you to hear more about that, that project. And then uh, Dr. Sousa, could you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, and, and again, uh, thank you, uh, Keith and, and Renee, uh, for having us on uh, to talk about this. Um, uh, my name is Bill Souza, uh, and uh, as Keith indicated uh, earlier, I'm the director of the Center for Crime and Justice Policy, uh, which is housed in the Department of Criminal Justice, um, and I'm also a professor uh, in the Department of Criminal Justice. Uh, I've been at UNLV now for a bit over uh, about 15 years now, um, and my research focuses on uh, crime and disorder reduction policies um, as implemented by police agencies. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to work with uh, some of the uh, very large police agencies in the U.S. Uh, and in other places, uh, NYPD, the Los Angeles Police, uh, London Metropolitan Police. Uh, my projects really focus in on, um, uh, you know, really the way that police can work with communities um, to reduce crime um, in in neighborhoods. Uh, and uh, more recently, uh, obviously since arriving here at UNLV, uh, I've done a lot of work with local agencies, including Henderson Police and uh, Las Vegas Metro Police. I've done a little bit of work on use of force, um, including the use of tasers. Uh, and I've done uh, quite a lot of work um, on the body-worn cameras on police. Um, that uh, is a relatively recent innovation in policing. And uh, uh, yeah, and so that uh, that is essentially um, uh, the work that I've been working on um, over the past um, uh, decade or so. So, Sebastian, as a student, I'm curious to know what specific pieces you hope to bring to this conversation. And particularly, how does um, hate um, reveal itself or how is it uncovered, particularly at a minority serving institution? Do you find that it's different? Do you find that it's the same? What are your thoughts? Well, I'll start with the first part of that question first. And in terms of this conversation, one of the things that, you know, I would like to get out of it is just, you know, highlighting um, Las Vegas's rich black history because it is a rich history. And it's also an expansive history that's, uh, that, that covers the, the span of decades. And when we take a look at Windsor Park, 
Um, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, it, it was a neighborhood that was developed in the 1960s. And as time has gone on, the neighborhood and the upkeep of the neighborhood has, uh, you know, figuratively fallen by the wayside. And as we, uh, you know, just being an observer of just redevelopment, not only here in, in Nevada, but across the country, you're seeing a lot of gentrification in a lot of urban neighborhoods. And due to the gentrification, you're seeing a lot of longtime residents being forced or pushed out of the neighborhoods that they've raised families in and, and that they've grown up in. So with that being the case, um, there, there's certainly developers that want to go into these older Las Vegas neighborhoods and, and gentrify it. And in the case of Windsor Park, there's so much history there that if it were to be gentrified, some of that history might be swept under the rug. So um, with this conversation, we definitely want to, you know, highlight the residents and, and the stories and the lives that they've had in this neighborhood. We want to make sure that, you know, we, we can preserve this history um, in, in the best way possible or, or in the most efficient way possible, because um, th this is a story of resilience and uh, the, the neighbors and the residents in this community definitely deserve to, to have their stories heard and to have their stories preserved as well. And in terms of hate, um, if we just take a look at, um, you know, if we, if, if we look at Las Vegas in a historical context, um, earlier you were mentioning snowfall, which takes, place in, uh, which takes place in South Central Los Angeles. Take a look at Los Angeles. That is a very segregated city when it comes to neighborhoods. And Las Vegas had the same type of development in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, and Windsor Park was a neighborhood that uh, came at the result of segregation during um, the 60s, during that de facto segregation period. So some of these policies, some of these practices, one could argue were developed um, under this notion of hate. So in order for us to break down the walls of hate, we have to take a look at some of the unique differences our different communities have, and we have to embrace them. Thank you. This, this question is for Dr. Sousa. Could you share a little bit about your about maybe some similarities and dissimilarities in your work with like the Los Angeles Police Department and the New York Police Department, Police Department, as well as the Las Vegas Police Department. Just what are some similarities or dissimilarities that you've seen in your work in terms of community partnerships to uh, reduce crime? Right. Uh, and so what I would say to that is that, well, of course, the, uh, all three of those cities, uh, Las Vegas, um, Los Angeles, and uh, New York are, are all very different. Um, they're different politically, uh, socially, culturally. Uh, and the relationship um, of citizens to police um, is different in, in, those, uh, in those areas. Um, New York being a very uh, old city um, it, uh, and a very, uh, an extraordinarily large city, um, what you find is that the relationship between uh, police and citizens um, varies quite a lot from uh, even from precinct to precinct, um, where um, some places have very uh, strong um, uh, connections um, with police. Uh, in others, there's a, there's a great deal of tension. I think you find that um, really across places where uh, you, you have um, not just differences in cities, but even within cities, there, there are a lot of differences in terms of how um, citizens um, connect um, with police. Although overall, um, what I would say is that, you know, one of the remarkable uh, things, and we don't often see this, 
um, when it comes to um, a lot of uh, the media and a lot of the press that comes out. Um, but overall, um, people have, uh, and this is across demographics, generally have uh, um, high confidence in police uh, or relatively high opinion of police um, in those places. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, uh, prefer to see more police than less police in them. Uh, and so one of the things that gets lost, I think, in, in a lot of the conversations that are currently um, uh, going on around the country um, is just that there, there's a very large um, uh, cross-section of the community who are very supportive of their police department. So, Dr. Sabbath, talk to us about how does your uh, background in terms of your uh, position as faculty here, um, as well as your research interests and your just overall passion for this work, how does that help you guide and shepherd this uh, four-part series? Uh, oddly enough, <laughs> the person I have to give credit who came up with the four topics was Marian Sultan, who is the uh, chief diversity chair, I believe she is called, of CSUN. And my focus was what are students concerned about? What do they see in their through their everyday lenses? And so I guess my devotion to the students, uh, recognizing the many challenges that they are going through really drives my passion for this project. Our students are first generation. Uh, we, as you mentioned, Renee, a, a, a multi-ethnic uh, task force. Uh, our work has to be across diverse uh, identities, and it's such an amazing, rich opportunity to help me understand myself as, a, as an individual. When I teach Bible as literature in the English department, I teach Hebrew Bible, New Testament, and Quran. I understand each of those sacred texts better by the conversations that happen between all three. And in fact, I have a, a, a collection coming out called a troubling, uh, a troubling Topic, Sacred Texts, Readings in Hebrew Bible, New Testament, and Quran. And each of these books, if looked at with fresh eyes, begin to open up possibilities of inclusivity uh, for uh, so many types of, uh, so many different demographics that have really been erased. So I think the interest, I've got this brain that loves interesting, new, I want to learn, and I want to appreciate this uh, amazing world we live in, not to mention our amazing campus. And I think, Renee, to your point, I found this incredibly inspirational. I spoke to each individual person on this, on these four panels, and there, I don't know, two, at least two dozen, each one has inspired me to continue to reach out and to find ways that I personally, and in perhaps helping our campus, achieve a more equitable and inclusive environment to help our students and our faculty and administrators grow and develop. Uh, Dr. Sousa, could you share a little bit about concerning uh, police reform in the light of protests during 2020, um, some of the recommendations or proposals that have sort of come forward and not maybe locally or even regionally or nationally, and maybe some of the challenges to those proposals implementation? Right. Yeah. And so um, some of the proposals uh, that have come out of the um, you know the events of uh, uh, the past year. Um, you we see a range of reforms um, or proposed reforms from uh, reforms to accountability, 
discipline and use of force policies uh, to more radical proposals that involve um, the total abolishment of police departments. Uh, and then others call for uh, defunding of the police, which can mean different things to different people. But essentially, it is the idea of shifting uh, some of police budgets um, to other services, such as education, social services, mental health, uh, or youth programs. Um, the idea of defunding uh, especially uh, holds some appeal in the current climate. Um, but the idea is controversial because there can also be some potential consequences to it. Um, first, there's no guarantee that by diverting funds to education and social programs that there'll be much uh, or dramatic impact uh, in terms of crime, um, for, for one. Um, and second, um, when you have reductions in police budgets uh, that uh, begin to impact personnel, uh, what happens is um, police often fall into a very reactive mode of policing, um, where essentially all they're doing is bouncing from call to call to call. And uh, we know, and the research is pretty solid on this, um, that that is not a very effective um, mode of policing. Uh, we know that it, when the police can, uh, uh, that the police can be effective um, at managing crime and managing problems in communities. But they have to be very proactive. They have to be engaging in, in, in foot patrol. They have to be connecting with citizens. Uh, they have to be going to community meetings, these types of things. And it's often these things that suffer when you have um, decreases in police budgets. So there are a lot of re proposed reforms that are out there, but we need to take them step by step because some of them um, can have consequences in terms of uh, um, the way that police uh, manage problems in communities. And so I'm I'm curious, um, in the same vein, what kind of strategies are specifically effective on a college campus that we need to look at? I know that the talk about defunding uh, the police, um, even on campuses, has also gained some popularity. Um, that you know, thank you for sharing some of the 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 pros and cons of of that uh, approach. But what recommendations would you see specifically for UNLV, as we know that safety and security and having a sense of belonging is so important to our student success, but also faculty and staff? Right. Well, well and again, um, what I would say uh, to that is uh, we have to look at um, where uh, police are um, uh, spending uh, their time and what are the impacts of um, you know, reducing those budgets. Does that mean that there will be fewer police on patrol? Does that mean there will be fewer um, uh, police that are connecting with students? Um, uh, and what are the potential consequences um, to campus safety? Uh, might, might, what might that mean? Uh, and so it, it's, you know, again, you know, we, we tend to think that, um, uh, that when there are problems uh, in a jurisdiction, whether it's on a campus or in a larger city or wherever, when problems exist that um, we tend to say, well, the police must not be doing a very good job at it. Um, the, the difficulty is we don't know how big the problem would be if the police weren't there. Um, there's this you know, kind of assumption that if that problems would go away, but that's not, the, not necessarily the case. Uh, we do know that there are things that police do, whether it be on a college campus uh, or in a larger jurisdiction, um, where they are able to manage problems, not just necessarily crime problems, but also um, minor disorders, things like graffiti, things like trash and litter, things like um, these types of activities um, that police can handle informally or formally, 
Um, but we know that um, these are the types of things that can help generate fear um, uh, um, among students, uh, among people who use a particular area. Uh, and if police, they're not a police to manage those problems, then it can lead, it can have larger consequences down the line. You know, our last guest talked about um, how COVID-19 has really exacerbated uh, this problem. And so, Dr. Sousa, I'm curious to know from your vantage point, how has COVID-19 particularly impacted um, our police uh, uh, services, our, our, you know, those in uniform? Can you maybe talk about how that has played a role in the work that they do? Right. So, you know, you know, to to the earlier points that we're hitting on, um, we're we may see a defunding of police, uh, even if there isn't a political will to defund the police. There may be a uh, an actual defunding of police by virtue of the fact that COVID has had an economic impact in a lot of places. Uh, and so, again, um, if we see reductions in police budgets to the point that it begins impacting police personnel, then you may be seeing uh, uh, problems uh, rise in communities because police will have less discretionary time to do proactive things that we know can be effective. So certainly COVID um, uh, has had an, an economic impact, which impacts you know, uh, public budgets across the board, um, including, uh, including police. Um, so there's that impact. And then you know, from, the, from the perspective of policing, because they are first-line responders, um, they are often, uh, uh, they are, they come into greater contact with people who, um, uh, who have COVID. And, um, it, it, it has, there have been cases where, um, police departments have been hit pretty hard by their own personnel, um, getting COVID. Um, and so you have that because the first responders, but you also have the overall economic impact as well. Could you also talk a little bit about strategies or ways for police and citizens to work together to enhance community safety and security in particular uh, among police and citizens in minority communities? Sure. And I I think, you know, again, uh, to some of the earlier points, there are um, many jurisdictions across the U.S. that enjoy a very solid relationship um, between uh, police and citizens. Um, and we do know that there are um, uh, there are um, uh, tactics that are effective, not in just in terms of managing crime uh, or managing problems in communities, but also in terms of um, enhancing relationships um, between um, police and citizens. Uh, we know, for example, uh, foot patrol um, uh, is um, a very effective way of uh, allowing police to connect with citizens, often in a very positive way. Uh, now, foot patrol back east uh, is sometimes easier because um, cities are built up. Uh, here in the west, cities are built out, and so you don't see a lot of foot patrol. But we can think of foot patrol as uh, almost a metaphor um, for uh, this idea of citizens, a citizen desire um, to work with police and to communicate with police. And police can do this in a number of ways. You can have meetings at churches. You can have meeting, community meetings. Um, you can have bike patrol, not just uh, foot patrol. Um, but all of these types of activities, um, it puts police in connection with citizens in a very positive way. Uh, we have to think, you know, when we have just calls for service, calls for service, um, police are arriving, and it's often the case that it's not, you know, for what it's, it's a negative situation. Either someone's been a victim of a crime, or they, they've been uh, in an accident, um, and uh, or they're really hurt. And so it's not always necessarily a positive reason for that connection. But things like foot patrol, community meetings, 
um, uh, connections, other ways to connect um, with citizens, these enhance the positive um, uh, relationships and can have overall um, a positive benefits. One of the very interesting things and something I, I emphasize quite a lot um, is the D.A.R.E. program. Um, and a lot of people are uh, they're down on D.A.R.E. because D.A.R.E. doesn't, um, uh, doesn't show to reduce uh, um, drug use among youth and these types of things. But what a lot of people don't realize is that um, the D.A.R.E. program significantly improves police-youth relations to the point that um, uh, youth who are arrested later in life um, you know, they, they asked to talk to their D.A.R.E. officer because the D.A.R.E. officer was the only person, only cop who ever communicated to them in a positive way. Now, that's a very powerful program for something that you get in the fourth or fifth grade um, to happen. Now, it might not have the intended impact on drug use, but it has a very important impact when it comes to police-youth relations. So anything that can be done to enhance communication in a positive way uh, is, is something that can help really enhance um, that uh, that strong relationship between police and citizens. What does DARE stand for, Dr. Sousa? <clears throat> oh my gosh, putting that on the spot. Uh, <laughs> DARE, uh, DARE is a drug abuse resistance uh, education, I, I believe, um, is the acronym. Dr. Sabat, one, we want to get you out of here on this question. Could you uh, just remind our listeners how do they connect to this hate uncycle series and maybe some desired outcomes as a result of hosting this series. I discovered today, I just put in hate uncycled in the UNLV homepage search box and in the left-hand toolbar, the, the hyperlink came up with all of the three dates. Um, we cover public health. We cover what our campus is doing, indigenous and uh, uh, land rights here in our own community in the African-American community of Windsor Park and then uh, law enforcement, First Amendment rights, and security. Out of these conversations, we hope to educate, to heighten the level of awareness. We are building allies. We're fighting the attitude of cynicism. Each of us has not only a responsibility, but also a desire to help make a change. And what I saw is that UNLV has individually, by departments, colleges, and so forth, have rolled up their sleeves to help, whether it's in this pandemic and even way before the pandemic. Um, we have to point out that this spring, our state legislature is meeting, and perhaps this uh, series will help showcase the fine work our campus has done. And I encourage folks to know that our legislators and our regents are listening to your voice. And again, thank you, Renee and Keith, so very much for having giving us this opportunity to showcase this remarkable program. Yes, definitely. Thank you for joining us. And we appreciate all the insights and for the team coming together to put together such an important series that we know will yield benefits for the entire university community. And one of the takeaways for me has been just the importance of, you know, community partnerships, in particular for policing, and then also really focusing on positive patrolling is something is a is a I think a important way to be able to improve those relationships and communication. Renee, what about you? Well, I'm really excited that a part of this uh, series is going to also cover not only Black excellence, so the the rich history of uh, Blacks that have uh, been a part of this community, but also the link to how they were disenfranchised and how that can be linked to hate and how if we don't do something like this, these 
of, uh, you know, people are going to be pushed out of their communities, which um, is is unjust. But I'm also glad to see that we're going to have senior level cabinet members a part of this conversation from our president to our provost uh, to our own vice president for police services, because we realize that um, attitude reflects leadership and we're going to need uh, strong leaders such in those positions to maintain and sustain the work. And so I'm really, really looking forward to this series. Uh, congratulations, Dr. Sabbath. She has done a wonderful job. I was yes. part of the first uh, time that she put this on and there may have been maybe, you know, 20 people in the room. I suspect that we're going to have a huge turnout and just all of the uh, conversations and the presenters and their level of expertise and passion. I know we're on the right track. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of KUNV Let's Talk UNLV. For my co-host, Keith, I'm Renee. Tune in next week, Wednesday at 12, on KUNV 91.5 Jazz and More. That's a wrap.